Day three is here, National Podcast Post Month, or NAPOD POMO. Hello, everybody. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. Switching gears for this edition, going into the world of pro wrestling, because also in the Geekville Radio family, we have classic wrestling memories, where we talk about the days of yore, uh, matches, wrestlers, events, storylines, really from the years 2000 and before. But that's over at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. This is one of our most popular episodes you're going to hear. And it's kind of ironic that it's one of our most popular episodes because the episode is called Unpopular Opinions. And as the name implies, we're going to give some unpopular opinions about three very historic things in the history of pro wrestling. So this is one of those where if you're a fan of the old school wrestling and you have your opinions on the how things were and how they should have been, this may make you check those opinions. But it's all in good fun. To give you an idea, here are the unpopular opinions. Unpopular opinion number one, Randy Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat at WrestleMania 3 was not the best WrestleMania match of all time. Unpopular opinion number two, Vince McMahon did not kill the territories. And unpopular opinion number three, Ronnie Garvin winning the NWA world title was a good idea. Those are three pretty unpopular opinions, and Crazy Train and I will explain why. So here we go. Classic Wrestling Memories, Volume 30, Unpopular Opinions. Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I am your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, on the boards at BehindTheSquaredCircle.com. And we're going to be taking a little bit of a detour, a little bit of a different route in this episode. This is, if you're keeping track, this is volume 30 of Classic Wrestling Memories. And this is something that kind of stemmed at least in part from conversations that Train and I had you know off mic talking subjects of what we wanted to do and that was about WrestleMania 3 and then it just kind of went from there so this episode we're going to talk three topics and the best way I can explain it is we're going to call this unpopular opinions because we're going to take three common beliefs in wrestling that seem to kind of be universally accepted and I'll present the point of view of that opinion, and then Train will kind of give what we might call the unpopular side, and we'll be able to back that up. So, joining me once again for Classic Wrestling Memories, Volume 30, from the nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, this is, this is a uh, topic we have discussed for a while, just have never really gotten around to recording it, and thought it was a good time. I like to talk about how I was a career babyface. I had a very short run at the beginning of my career as a heel. And then the remainder of my 15 years in ring as an in-ring competitor, I was a babyface, and I felt I was pretty effective at it. This might, this show might cast me in the light of a heel uh, simply because these are unpopular. And, and 
full caveat and transparency for our listeners, the, the cases that I'm going to present as the con are actually how I feel personally. And they are a little bit against the mainstream consensus, I think. I hope maybe you at least will be open-minded enough and pragmatic enough to listen to what I have to say. And if you disagree, that's fine. I'm, I'm always open for people to respond to me on the, on the message boards or on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. Just don't come in wanting, wanting to argue because that's just silly. We're all adults here. At least I hope so. But as I sit here and drink from my John Carpenter Halloween mug and I look at Michael Myers' face on my mug, I, I, I'm imagining it says Smarks Tears on it because I get a feeling this mug is going to be full of them before this podcast is over <laughs> and I'm drinking them down with a gleeful smile on my face. So. <laughs> Let's get let's get this thing underway, Seth. <laughs> All right. You know, as anybody can tell from the cover photo, if you go to this episode at classicwrestlingmemories.com slash thirty, you'll see that the headline photo is Randy Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And that is going to be our first belief, so to speak, or or misconception. I think I think I'll just call it a belief. We'll just call it belief number one. <laughs> That Randy Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat at WrestleMania 3 is the greatest WrestleMania match of all time. And a lot of fans will tell you that. Uh, a lot of really people who just kind of watch at the time, certainly in the crowd, you'll even hear some wrestlers say it. And I can totally understand where that comes from because anybody who knows me knows that Randy Savage is my favorite wrestler of all time, period. There's, and he's even a heel at this point, and you're still right. saying that. So, <laughs> Right. I, I remember somebody pointing out in probably about 10 or 15 years ago that Shawn Michaels may be thought of as Mr. WrestleMania, but before Shawn Michaels, Randy Savage could have been considered Mr. WrestleMania when you look at all the high-profile matches he had throughout the years. I, I could say there's an argument for that. Obviously, Hulk Hogan's in that discussion because he may have invented all the, the first several, <laughs> but – but as far as like just in-ring performance and stealing the show, there is definitely an argument pre-Shawn Michaels it was Randy Savage. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and th that's where I think people say that is it stole the show, so to speak. And even Ricky himself had said that people would come up to him after WrestleMania and, and just glow about that match. And there's a good reason why that match flowed so well. We'll get to that in a, in a minute. For me – Personally, while I understand where they're coming from, and I know I said I'd be taking the kind of pro side in this, my favorite WrestleMania match of all time, and admittedly I'm biased, is WrestleMania Six, the Hogan Warrior match. That that if I had to pick one, is probably my favorite. Although you could certainly talk some of the Shawn Undertaker matches that have mm -hmm. happened, or even the Shawn Flair match, you know, a Flair's well, I, retirement match. But, I would argue know. the main event of WrestleMania Six is the best match that, that Ultimate Warrior ever had in his career. Oh, yeah. And probably top three Hogan ever had. Right. And both those guys had a lot of matches. So what does that tell you? you right. Know? Thank you, Pat Patterson. You know, <laughs> but... The uh, crowd went bananas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing that I would put forth there, because this is something I independently think about this when talking about greatest matches of all time, usually... When you hear greatest matches of all time, they're 20 minutes, 30 minutes, hour draws, something to that effect. I confirmed the timing on this match. It's 14 minutes, 35 seconds. That's what it states in Wikipedia. If you go to the WWE Network and queue it up, first off, with the edited music, it's hard for me to watch 
Ricky the Dragon Steamboat come out and not hear the Alan Parsons project, but it starts at one hour, 47 minutes, and then it ends a little bit after the two hour mark. So it actually does come out to 14 minutes, 35 seconds. So we're talking roughly 15 minutes tops. Right, right. So not not counting intros, of course, but we're, we're just talking simply when the bell rang to when the three count happened. So you're talking a match that's under 15 minutes, and you'll see, and it is a different time period, I get it, but you'll see matches on Raw that are over 15 minutes all the time. Right. So sure. that's, where I, that's where I'll lead off with, and Tran, I'll let you run with it from here, and if there's anything else I want to counter with, I'll throw that <laughs> at you, okay? Okay. Well, first off, I think of all the people that have been the most vocal online about this not being even the best match of WrestleMania 3, probably be Al Snow. Where he's, mm-hmm. as he points out, and I think quite correctly, Savage and Sa- Savage Tino didn't sell that house. Right. Hogan Hogan Andre sold that house, so that makes it by default the best match on the card, no matter how good or bad it was. Because we can discuss all we want, the fake number, the real number. It was still a whole heck of a lot of people that were in that building for that for that show that yeah. day. I, th- on this, we can agree, I'm sure, right? Yeah, a- absolutely. I'll go into a little more detail if we do a show about Mania Three, but. I was one of those people that didn't really believe or didn't really jive with Dave Meltzer's opinion that there about the worked number, about the right. 93,000 number. And mm-hmm. I don't know how WWE came to that that figure, but I had thought that, well, I, I it certainly look at the pictures. It certainly looks like it, it sold out. But there's two things. First off, an A1 alumni who was in a lot of the early podcasts, the first podcast to Apart from the now defunct A1 podcast, George Murphy, he was physically in the building and he attended Mania 3 Live. And he said, no way was it sold out. There there were a lot of empty seats in the nosebleeds. And of course, those official images that WWE put out there, there's that pretty common one that you see that's like up from the upper deck and you just see it right. all and it like seems to go on for on. That, of course, has been retouched to take out the empty seats because that's what Vince wants. But if you go back and watch the match or anything on WrestleMania 3, now that we have the advantage of true high-definition feeds, you'll definitely see there's a lot of empty seats in the nosebleeds. But that's neither here nor there. That has nothing to do with the match. I just right. I, I just figured it's worth it's worth mentioning. Sure. I, I, I think on that particular thing, that, that WrestleMania in particular, but and I don't want to speak for Dave Meltzer because I like Dave Meltzer. I respect his opinion. Uh, obviously Dave is a grown man who could speak very, very well for himself and does. But for whatever reason, my perception is that Dave is just upset with Vince's and others, but Vince being the biggest one at tweaking numbers like that, kind of fudging on the, and I don't know why it's such a personal thing with Dave. My opinion is that it, probably he feels, because once again, this is my opinion, Dave can speak for himself. If you, It's okay to work the fans on what you do in the ring, but something like that, that can be researched. Why would you work them on that? Because, because Dave is right, even with it not being a sellout, like we just said, with the number of people they put in the building, it's still very, very impressive. It's massively right. impressive, even the, even the, the, whatever the real number is. It was an impressive amount of tickets sold and people in the mm-hmm. building. So yeah. I don't know why. That's just everybody has their own hill they have to die on, and that's one of the ones Dave Belser has chosen to die on is Vince fudging numbers on attendance at big shows. So that's just my opinion on it. But for me – Besides that fact, I am not saying – let me give a caveat before I start really getting people upset and grabbing their pitchforks and torches. I'm not saying the match wasn't great. The match is phenomenal as far as 
just pure in-ring psychology, moveset, the, the work rate, all that stuff that people want to talk about about this particular match. It is. It, it's five-star all the way, at, the, at least four, four-and-a-half stars. It, it was, in my opinion, especially for North American-based wrestling, one of the best and most defining matches of the entire decade. Um, it is one of the most defining matches of the entire run of, of, of WrestleMania. And we're now on what? 32. Is that right? 33, six, I think is what we're coming up on. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. But so, so it stood the test of time. I'm not saying any of that. Here's what I'm saying. This was a match that had a phenomenal buildup of a blood feed. This was a feud. If you remember the storyline behind this match was that Randy Savage in being his absolute most heelish had had injured Key Steamboat, the, the quintessential white meat baby face, which we talk about in the Baby Face 101 episode. He had been injured by Savage. Uh, he had, had crushed his larynx, I believe, or the esophagus or something, with a coming off the top rope and smashing it into his throat with a with the with the ring bill from the timekeeper's mm-hmm. table. So this is a match that is, you know, a blood feud. It is a match where the baby face is doesn't doesn't care about titles doesn't care about he wants revenge because this man essentially tried to end my career and that equates to this man tried to prevent me from doing what i love and what i do to make a living to feed my family that's the story that's being told leading into this Mm -hmm. now i will admit you have stylistic differences in promotions and i at this time as a fan grew up growing up in the crockett territory they approached and Dusty's booking at the time, Dusty Rhodes booking at the time, approached those type of angles much differently when they did blow off matches. I'll I'll use my favorite match of all time as 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 a, as a counterpoint to this. This is not dissimilar in time or in in, in timbre of the buildup to Tully Tully Magnum from Five, mm-hmm. that of course ends with the bloodbath that is the I Quit match in the cage. Which, if you go back and watch that match, there's very little technical. It, it, it's a fight, okay? Right. It's a fight. It, it's not pretty. It's ugly. It's violent. These guys, you believed, were trying to end each other's careers in that match. For God's right. sakes, it ends with, with Magnum stabbing Tully in his eye with a wooden spike. That's pretty visceral. Right, right. And Magnum himself even says in his post-match interview, he says that wasn't wrestling. But right. that's, that's what it took or something to that effect. Yes. Once again, I think the, the parallels are similar. The title, the secondary title in the promotion was on the line, the U.S. title as opposed to the Intercontinental title from the Savage Steamboat match. So I think, they're, I think they're, it's really good to point-counterpoint these two matches. And they're around the same time because Magnum, Tully were 85. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking that – they're the same era. Yeah, year and a half. And I, yeah. yeah, and I understand. I understand that – that Pat Patterson and and Vince, the guys that were booking for Vince at the time, that wasn't their thing. I think that also lends to why the match was so short. They just they didn't do the hour Broadway like they did in the NWA. That just wasn't WWF style. That wasn't what their fan base had been conditioned over years and years to be used to. As great as as both of us think Bruno was, and as much as we praise Bruno, you know, go back and listen to our our tribute episode to Bruno, and you'll see that Bruno was not a guy who had these long technical matches as champion, nor did Backlund, nor did, did Hogan to that point. That wasn't the WWF way, and it hadn't been for years, and so their fans have been conditioned for that. So I can even give it a pass on the length of time. It's this great technical match, but it doesn't fit the storyline. 
The only part of the match that even fit that was maybe the, some of the the secondary stuff with George the Animal Steel and Liz. And to me, that even that made it even worse, not better, right? Because right. it distracted from these two guys that, that should, based on the story you're telling me, want to kick each other. And instead of going in there and 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 I understand. Brawling was not Ricky Steamboat's forte. You know, he was a technical guru. That was what got Ricky Steamboat over. I think we all agree on that. And for right. the most part, Savage, too. He was a little bit more vicious because he had heel runs. But we're talking about Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat. We're talking about two of the greatest in-ring performers of all time who were probably two of the greatest pure athletes to ever compete in the wrestling ring. I, I'm sure you would agree with that. Yeah. We consider them both, at least I do, and I think you do, they both can be considered men's men. Yes. For, for if, if there's any doubt about either one of them's legitimate athletic ability, remember both of them played minor league baseball before they became professional wrestlers. Mm -hmm. And they were both good hitters. I, I believe Savage was an outfielder and a shortstop. Ricky Steamboat was a shortstop and a second baseman. You as a, as a baseball guy can – can comment on the athleticism involved in those fielding positions. Those are some mm -hmm. of the more athletic guys on the field, on the diamond, I should say. So yeah. I'm not saying these guys. So what I'm saying is these guys could pull off a brawl, an unbelievable brawl. They had the capability. They just chose not to. And to me, that just doesn't. Now, I don't know if it was because they both didn't feel comfortable with that because of what we're talking about with them both being known for their technical prowess. If it was something that came down from the office and the office like, that's not how we book things here. I don't know. I don't know who ultimately made the decision. I just feel, and like I said, I'm biased because of growing up in the Crockett's with, with, with that dusty style of booking. George Scott, I watched Florida's Eddie Graham style. Anybody who listens to this podcast knows the differences I'm talking about in booking styles compared to what we got from Vince, right? Mm -hmm. It's just it, the match didn't fit the – did not at all – fit the story that was being told leading up and, and, and it bothers me because i thought it was a brilliantly conceived and executed program an angle a reason for why we're having this match and and it's it's the idea of crushing a guy's throat like that and using the the, the ring bell was i'm sure it had been done before but i'd never seen it as a fan and it, lots of guys get their arm broken or their leg broken but to attack a guy's throat and to use the, the ring bell, that was kind of new. Had you ever seen that before that point? No, I, I can't really think of any offhand. But yes, you're right. I don't think I've seen it happen that much. It's certainly the only time WWE did it, at least at the time. But what you're getting at to kind of extrapolate or, or sum it up is you have this bitter, can't really call it a blood feud because nobody's bleeding. <laughs> That's definitely WWF versus NWA right. right there. Yeah, but anyway. But traditional booking logic would dictate that these guys would then be in a no count out, no DQ match, street fight rules, lights out, something right. like that. Right. You know, that's what you would expect it to be. And I would give the caveat, and maybe it's out there. Maybe it's in a promo that I missed that that didn't make the match build up for the Mania Three pay per view. But if Steamboat had said something to the effect of, and this is something Dusty would say to Flair or something like that, this title is what makes you tick, and the best way to hurt you is to take that title away from you. Even then, I could kind of concede, but even then, Savage is still wrestling a match, not not necessarily doing doing the fight. Right. And right. one other thing 
talking about the match going so smoothly, and I didn't know this until you had told me, and it didn't really surprise me in the end, because by, by the time we had become friends, it was a decade or two after I was reading the after mags, if I recall correctly, they did that match almost move for move on the house short tour uh, leading up to Mania, right? Right. right. They, they built up to it. What they did was, I think it's well documented now that Savage and probably DDP were the most meticulous guys as far as how they wanted their matches to and to the point where both of them would literally plan out their match from the first lockup to the finish. And for old school guys like me, and for Steamboat for that matter, that was not how you did a match. I know that that tends to be the, the way that guys do it nowadays. My, my counterpoint to that would always be, and what do you think of the matches we have nowadays? Do they look like real fights or do they look like choreographed dancing routines and gymnastics? Right. Matches. Especially so. with the <laughs> criticism that a lot of people like me have all too often is how many times do you see it in WWE where, where they lock up and the, the baby face is running wild and the fight spills to the floor and the baby face does the dive to the floor. And it's almost like clockwork. You start looking at your watch because you know they're going to go to break. You know, right. it, it, so, yeah, it's become formulaic is what you're saying. <laughs> so because of that, Savage wanted to plan it out and they would – literally have and they like i said this was because i'm trying to remember this feud was about what three four months in the building wasn't around the end of the year that they started this and then it built all the way up to the spring for wrestlemania and that about right yeah because savage won the title shortly before mania 2 so he'd been the intercontinental champion for the entire calendar year of 1986 well not the calendar year but Almost the, the year 1986 right. by the time their feud started. Right. And so I want to say that the original injury angle, the crushing of the larynx, was probably December, maybe January. So they had at least three months to build up to this. And you have to remember that the scheduling at the time for the WWF, they were running house shows much different than they do now. They were literally running – those guys were wrestling five to, to, to nine house shows a week. You know what I'm saying? They were sometimes mm -hmm. doing – they were doing Monday through Friday and then double shots on Saturday and Sunday. So, you know, that's nine matches in a week. And they were, these two were, as we would say in the business, married to each other that whole time on the house show circuit. And each, each city they would go to, each house show, they would add something else. And Savage would decide whether he liked it or he didn't like it. And he had a notebook that he kept with all the spots in it, even the most simple spots, you know, even just the transitions and things. And I, I, I've heard rumor that he would name he, – he like had him numbered or lettered or something like mm -hmm. that. And it drove Steamboat nuts because I have talked to Steamboat about this where they would be on the private jet and he would yell out one of the numbers and Steamboat was supposed to rapidly fire back off what that was. And that was getting on Steamboat's nerves a little bit. Steamboat is too nice a guy to have ever said anything to Randy, I think. And I think the, the, there was a lot of mutual respect there because of their athletic backgrounds. But you have to remember, Steamboat was a guy who had come up and cut his teeth here in the Carolinas and in Georgia doing matches with Rick Fair and, 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 and Wahoo and guys like that where you didn't do that. I, I think when you compare this to that trilogy of, of praised matches that he had with Flair a few years later in 89, remember how those matches were much longer, had as many near falls and were I think were just as dramatic and technically sound and they didn't talk about anything but the finish before they went to the to the now granted steamboat had a much longer history of wrestling flair from back in the 70s 
But my point is, those matches, which I think from a technical standpoint were just as good as this match, yet none of it was was laid out like that. I think you understand what I'm trying to say there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things where those matches you were talking about, each one still felt different. It it wasn't feeling choreographed or anything like that. And they they didn't feel different because some Steamboat one and some Flare one, it's just you notice it a lot especially nowadays for me, since I've become such a big New Japan fan, uh, how you see the similarity between the matches and the styles in a WWE show as opposed to non-WWE show. And I don't want to sound like I'm poo-pooing WWE because I, I still watch all their pay-per-views. So there's there's right. stuff to this day that they do that I like. But the whole thing is everybody seems to kind of have that style in mm-hmm. WWE with how things are, are, are paced. And just for... The record, since I did look it up while we were talking here, Dave Meltzer did give that match at Mania three four and a half stars. I so, thought that I thought it was a four four and a half stars. I couldn't. Remember. I knew it wasn't a five star, but I knew it was close. Right. So it's to your point that you brought up earlier. Let me address that, and and I, I think I can kind of get off my soapbox on this particular topic. I agree with you. Had at some point in the build up to that to the blow off, which was the match we're talking about, if at any point in that angle. Had Steamboat done a promo on WWF television, especially where he said, the only way I'm going to hurt you is to take away your title. And that had been laid out there as that, that, that proverbial carrot being dangled in front of Savage and us as fans, it would have made a little more sense. Right. And, and what better of a white me baby face thing to say, quite frankly. Right. And, and I go back to the Magnum, the Magnum Tully feud and another one I can throw in there. That also has similarities from before the, before Magnum Tully is Stark 83, the dog collar match with with Piper and, and, and Greg Valentine. Also, once again, the whole thing is predicated upon uh, an, an interesting injury angle where they had the thing where, where, where Valentine put the chair, the leg of the chair on the ear of, of Piper and then sat down on the chair. And, and Piper was selling this inner ear injury where he couldn't keep his balance. And so interesting angle, never seen that before. It was, it was something different, but, but it was also for the U S title. Once again, the secondary title here in the, in the Carolinas territory in both those cases. Yes, it was for the U S title. And yes, it was brought up by the baby face Piper in one example, Magnum in the other. It, it, it became more than that. You follow what I'm saying? Right. In fact, people tend to forget because Gordon Soley it incorrectly announces it and then has to correct himself in the live feed from Starcade 83, that match was a non-title match. That wasn't even for the U.S. title. Right. The one at Star, the because and the reason behind it was because the NWA board and Jim Crockett Jr. had said, "No, this is this is a blood feud. This is a dog collar match. We're not. We don't defend our titles in essentially a garbage match. You know, a fight. They're defended in wrestling matches, and that was the caveat. So yes, those were important aspects, but the I Quit match was for the U.S. title, which Magnum won and won the title. But like this, both Piper and Valentine, both Magnum and Tully, start their feuds. One starts with an injury angle. The other doesn't. It's just – it started over the U.S. title with Magnum and Tully, but then it, 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 it morphed and grew into something else. These, both these, those, those, those particular matchups were married to each other and did the house show loops for the Crockett's, but they weren't, they weren't, they weren't doing it to test out moves for the blow-off match it was each was another layer on top of the next layer in telling the story that led to the i quit match and the dog collar match 
some of that can also be once again promotional differences. They just the way house shows were done were different in the Crockett's than they were and for Vince. The territory was different, especially in light of the fact that he was going national at the time and it wasn't a regional thing. But I think once again, the dog collar match, it felt like the blow off to what had, the story we had been told as fans. Greg Valentine tried to end Roddy Piper's career and prevent him from being able to make a living and feed his family. And so the only recourse that Piper has is to let's strap each other by the neck, this chain and beat the crap out of each other. The only recourse that, 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 that Magnum had is Tully had thrown fire in his face and burned him earlier in this, in this feud. This has come to a point where we can't have a wrestling match. We have got to just fight each other and to a bloody pulp until one of us can't take it anymore. And is will openly say to everybody in the building, I quit those two blow off matches meet the stories being told. Then you go to the WWF, same stories being told in a very similar way, and your blow-off is one of the te- greatest technical matches of all time with maybe three punches thrown in the whole match. That's my point. That really, I think, covers about anything I could think of as far as that match goes. Uh, the only other thing you could probably add, just to kind of play devil's advocate to like what you're talking about, is when you bring animal into the match and of course he for the last year had had that infatuation angle with elizabeth Mm -hmm. so not only is this a blood feud there's another guy out there who's seems to be trying to take his woman what how's a guy going to react to that have a technical right you know (laughs) right right and once again then the blood feud should have been between george animal steel and, and savage not steamboat savage right once again let me speak to that just a little bit i was a comedy guy most of my career I was the the comedy character babyface in the opening match that got over more by doing silly things to to get egg on the face of the heel than I was the guy who was going to out-wrestle the heel or that whatever. And I got over doing that, and there's a place for it on wrestling cards. It can't be every match, but there there's a place for it. When I had, and I did have in my career, blood feuds. You think I was doing a whole lot of comedy in those? Nope. Exactly. Believe me, ladies and gentlemen— there's photographic evidence out there. I bled a lot in my career. There were many nights I was left laying in the middle of the ring, unconscious in a pool of my own blood. Why? Because I understood that was what I had to do to get sympathy and to get the heel over. This is part of telling the story. I understood that, and usually in my case, it would be my shenanigans, my silliness, my not taking things seriously that would upset a heel that got him to the point where he would leave me in a pool of my own blood. And then we took it to the next level. Now, I I don't think either of us are disagreeing. At that point in George Animal Steel's career, he was not the menacing monster heel he had been for Bruno in the 70s. He was now a comedy guy, just like I was. Would you agree with that? Right. Yes. So that makes it even worse, in my opinion. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think you understand what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. It's like to all due respect to George Animal Steel. I I love George Steel and I was huge, huge mark for him. I stole stuff from him because he did similar things. At the end of his career to what I did in mine, he could have gone that route and he chose not to. Once again, I'm not blaming George. Maybe it was a personal decision. Maybe it was one where the where he had some ideas where he wanted to go a little bit that way. And the company just said, no, that's not how we do things here. I don't know. I, I have to emphasize, I don't know why it wasn't done the way I'm talking about. It just was. Right. My gut feeling is it was a combination of a little bit of savage and his own insecurities, and a whole lot of Vince and his ideas of what quote-unquote family entertainment was. That's just my opinion. Yeah, my pure speculation on that with with the whole 
uh, George Animal Steel Elizabeth thing is they were kind of borrowing in a way, you know, Phantom of the Opera. The, there was the a little mon- bit of Beauty yeah. and the Beast. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I'm not saying that's a bad story to be told. Just it just seemed extraneous to use a big word for this feud. You agree? I, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, once again, if if you want to discuss my my and tell me how wrong I am, and this is if you were really upset that you would have a great technical match like this, uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at crazy underscore JB. But my response I'm going to tell you right now is, and you have never been in a real fight before, have you? As promised, we're going to talk our second belief, belief number two, and that is the common belief that Vince McMahon killed the territories. And I know pretty much, I can't say exactly because the whole territory death or whatever you would call decline, destruction, most of that happened before I was watching regularly. I'd seen some matches in the 80s, but it wasn't until 90 that I started watching regularly, like week in and week out. So I had heard the stories from a lot of fans and promoters and such when I was still young and naive to kind of things that's like, Oh, of course, a promoter is always going to speak the truth. I'd naturally say that, but it's it's that kind of thing you're thinking they're giving their side of it. But I came to learn as I physically grew and mentally grew as a fan that that's, yeah, he gets the blame for it. And I think some of it can be justified, but I now hold the thought that even if Vince did do it, if he hadn't, somebody else would have. I think that's kind of more where my thought process is on that. And I, I, I know you're going to differ from that, but I just I wanted to give you my take on it as far as that opinion goes. It's like if he, even if he did do it, if he didn't do it, somebody else would have. I hope that makes sense. And I am going to absolutely agree with you. That has always been my counterpoint. Much like the previous topic – spun out of a discussion you and I had on WrestleMania 3 and the proposed idea of doing an episode dedicated to that show. This spun out of a question I got from a fan of mine, a friend of mine who is a fan, who is younger than both you and I. He's in his 30s, who started watching wrestling mid-90s, so a little bit after you did. And he asked me the question, could the territories work today? Because he knows my love and my knowledge of the territories. And I thought about it. And I responded resoundingly with it. No, they couldn't. And that morphed into me thinking about everybody. Anybody time you bring up the territories with modern fans. Well, Vince McMahon killed those. That's always the first thing they say. And I'm like, did he really? Yeah, he helped precipitate the death of them. But he wasn't who was to blame by any stretch of the imagination. I think if anything killed the territories, the territories killed the territories. And I started to look at it from a historical standpoint. And I thought back to when Vince first decided to break that that year-long gentleman's agreement to not run shows in somebody else's territory, especially without their permission. But that had been the backbone of the monopoly and the old-school, old-boy system that had been the NWA for, at that point, what, 40 years? Something like, yeah. And Vince's like, no, I'm going to start trying to run shows outside that. Vince was ahead of the curve. And I think this is something that he doesn't get credit for. We talk about it all the time, especially I do, how wherever technology is in getting the product out to the masses, wrestling's been at the forefront. It was in the 50s during the the advent of television. Well, this is the second big technological breakthrough with cable television, and he sees this. 
But don't think he was the only promoter who saw that. I, I often have to remind people he had competition and he had stiff competition from two promotions in particular. That would be the Crockett promotion, which by that time had become the Carolinas and Georgia because we all we could we could do a whole episode on Black Saturday and Vince's attempt to buy to essentially buy Georgia championship wrestling to get to Atlanta television. That's why he really wanted was to get that slot on TBS with this idea of going national and what that led to. And then Crockett stepping in at the 11th hour and buying back the time slot for a million dollars, even which in historical retrospect is funny because he took that $1 million he got from Jim Crockett Jr. And used it to help finance WrestleMania one. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, but what is not known by a lot of people. And it's the other major competitor he had at the time was that Ted Ted just wanted out of the deal with Vince because the fans that watched TBS were not happy with Vince's product. And I could add that the, the rating showed that. Right, exactly. And it, the real reason why, and I'm speaking of this from a very personal, intimate point of view because I was in that territory as a fan at the time, was because we also got USA Network, which is what Vince's other syndicated programs were on as he was doing this national expansion. Guess what the matches were we were getting on, on, on the, old TV, the old Georgia Championship Wrestling time slot were. Recycled matches with different, different announcers that we'd already seen on USA, on his other television stuff. And this is in complete contradiction to what he told Ted Turner he was going to give him. He was going to give him new matches, and he didn't. So I think some of the Ted-Vince war that, you, that, that Vince likes to so fondly talk about, that's where some of it started. Because Ted felt like as a businessman he'd been lied to. And it was costing Ted money, and he's a businessman, so he's taking his person. If you refer back to what I said about the whole Steamboat Savage, Ted took this as, oh, you're trying to take money out of my pocket for me from feeding my family. That's kind of thing. Personally, I think that's how, how Ted kind of took it. But Ted, long before Crockett got involved, was going to give the time slot to Bill Watts and let Bill Watts put his Mid-South stuff on TBS. Which would be interesting, quite frankly. Yes, it would have. It would have. And, and I can tell you as a fan – in this territory at that time, Bill Watts' product would have sold to us fans. Vince's wasn't going to. It was too cartoony. It wasn't serious enough. That wasn't Bill Watts. Bill Watts was all about putting heat on the heels on his television and blood and violence and these grudge matches. We're talking about championships mattered, those kind of things. Very similar to what we had here in the Carolinas. The only difference being is that Bill was a big, big fan of guys with legitimate amateur football backgrounds. That's why you had guys get their start with Bill Watts, like Jim Duggan, like Ted DiBiase, like Dr. Steve Williams. They were him. Bill Mm -hmm. was a football player. That's why Bill was best friends with Ernie Ladd. Those kind of guys. Big, badass-looking dudes that you look like they could win a fight, that played college football, maybe a couple of years in the pros. So that was the kind of, that was the only difference. Whereas, you know, here in the Carolinas, we had a little bit flashier with Flair and guys like that. But they, Flair still looks like he could win a fight too. It just wasn't as big as like say a Dr. Destiny Williams. Right. But a lot of people don't know that. And it wasn't, but, but a few years after this, was about 86, 87, he changes the name of Mid-South to the UWF. And now essentially you have this three-pronged war going on with Crockett gobbling up territories and trying to go national and you've got bill watts who's not doing that but still making deals a little bit farther out than the than the traditional mid-south territory jazzing up his tv production values and 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 making syndicated deals outside of that territory 
so that fans can see his product. So it wasn't just Vince, I don't think, that Crockett and, and Bill completely did that to try to counteract Vince. I think that was part of it. But I think they saw the same thing Vince saw. This is the way the world's going. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. I don't think it was at all just, oh, I have this is my competitor. I think that was an aspect for sure. Instead of being this th- this three-way match, I see it more as a race and who was going to make it to the finish line first is how I look at it. And obviously both WC but, well, at the time on WCW, but both the Crockett's and, and Bill Watts did not succeed where Vince did. But they did not succeed for very different reasons. The reason the Crockett's didn't succeed was simply because of bad business decisions. They overextended themselves. They looked at how Vince was making money. They're going, how is Vince doing this and making money and staying financially soluble? So let's go back and look at what Vince was doing as he went when he went national. Yes, he got the pay-per-view with WrestleMania, but he was also running seven to nine house shows a week, like we mentioned in the previous topic. So he was also doing house shows and generating revenue that way as part of his national expansion. He was cutting the deal with NBC for Saturday Night's Made Events. But the real way he was really penetrating these markets was through his syndicated television deals outside of the Northeast. And that was something that Crockett's people are looking at going, okay, this is what we need to emulate. And that is why Crockett started gobbling up these dying territories, Kansas City, Florida, places like that. And he did it without having the business acumen of Vince. When Vince tried to take over... Georgia Championship Wrestling. Vince never, ever, in my opinion, had any plans of ever running a house show in Georgia, ever, at least for a good long while until his TV had taken off in the area. And if he did, it was going to be Atlanta. That was the key. Vince was Vince looked at major television markets, and that's where he wanted to get his television because he understood how it could affect the overall fan base. He was thinking much bigger. The Crockett's weren't understanding that. And they're not thinking about the fact that if I buy Florida Championship Wrestling or sorry, Championship Wrestling from Florida, all I really need to be worrying about is probably Tampa and Miami because I'm not going to be running shows in Vero Beach. I'm not going to be running shows in Palm Beach. I'm not going to be running shows in these smaller markets like Eddie Graham was doing every week or every month. And he goes in and he buys them up. And if he had just waited, these territories were dying. He could have went in and brokered his own syndicated deals instead of picking up the already existing ones. But Crockett was worried. He didn't have he didn't have people in those territories that had historical relationships with the television people that Eddie Graham had in Florida, that Harley Race and Bob Geigel had in Kansas City, that that in the central states area. So he didn't have any of those. And combine that with the fact that what he did not understand was Vince had an entire staff of working behind the scenes that had that were not wrestling people at all. These were people who specialized in live event promotion, who specialized in television, and he hired him, and he had a big office staff is what I'm saying. And here's Crockett trying to do the exact same thing Vince is doing and still running it the way his father did 20 years earlier, which for those of you who don't know, Big Jim ran, ran a million-dollar-a-year business, the Jim Crockett Promotions, out of a booth at a diner in Charlotte, North Carolina, and kept all the records on a, on a little notepad he kept in his breast pocket of his shirt. He was just that good with numbers. He kept it condensed to three states, and that was all he ever had to worry about. And he had three mm-hmm. office staff, two old women who were still with the company when Crockett, was, his son, was trying to do this in the 80s, working as secretaries and receptionists and an accountant who was part-time, a CPA. 
how is that going to compare and trying to do this big national expansion to what Vince has probably got at that time? What, 25, 30 people behind the scenes doing just television? This is where the Kevin Dunn's and people like that come of the world come in. You follow what I'm saying? Right. It, it's just a completely <laughs> different business model and just a completely different mindset. Right. And then on top of that, he's also trying to keep up with the with the house show. And we just mentioned how many house shows Vince is doing. And he's getting out of the, the territorial reach of where his television is and where they're not strong. He's going to Los Angeles and trying to do West Coast swings. And Vince had already permeated LaBelle's NWA Hollywood was kind of dead or kind of dead by that point. The really the only successful territory on the West Coast at that time, I would say, would probably be Don Owen and and Portland, wouldn't you say? Yeah, especially considering even well into the 80s and I think even in the early 90s, Roddy Piper was still doing shows for Don Owen because that's where he got his break from. And Piper's an old school guy that he's going to give back to the people that Gave to him. Loyalty. Yeah. So I don't think Al Tomko was doing anything in, 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 in British Columbia and Vancouver anymore. The LaBelle's had kind of died in L.A. Roy Shires had kind of died in San Francisco. So there was a void in the market and Vince just beat him to it. And I, we're, I'm not trying. I'm an East Coast guy. You're a Midwestern guy. So I, I understand we're both a little bit biased. But mm-hmm. I can see as flamboyant as Ric Flair is, a guy like Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior or Randy Savage is just going to sell to West Coast people easier than a Ric Flair or a Dusty Rhodes is. Don't you agree? Right, right. Absolutely. Now, of course, Chicago, since we're talking territories, I was growing up at the time in a place that would have been considered AWA, I would think. It would be Gagne that would probably be running around here. And it's one of those things that we could probably dedicate an entire show to it about AWA's decline. It's just because Vern kept booking like it was 1965. Right. And to speak to that, because Crockett was a little more modern, so to speak, for that era in his booking where Dusty was in the 80s as opposed to – that's why I think Chicago Chicago was one of those few markets outside of the traditional southern territories that Crockett actually was somewhat successful with and could go head to head with Vincent. Chicago was one of those cities. Mm-hmm. And then of course, because I, I've talked about before, wrestling is a bunch of alpha males. Dusty was definitely an alpha male. They, they're trying to run Boston and New York. And I'm sitting there going, Vince wasn't stupid enough to try to run Charlotte or Atlanta. Why are y'all trying to run New York or Boston? You know, think about it, right? Right. Vince was smart. And so they're overextending themselves. It's it takes a lot of money to to an entire show. I'm talking, you know, referees ring crew, the ring itself, and all the wrestlers to go from Charlotte, North Carolina to Los Angeles. And what they were doing, this is well documented, they were, they're, they're, they're running Vegas, they're living out of Vegas, they're flying the personal jets, because that's another thing Crockett did, he bought a second personal jet to fly all these guys around. And do you know how much it costs just to keep one of those things in, in, in like dry dock at an airport? Are you kidding me? Yeah, More money on. than any of us will probably make in our entire lives. Exactly. <laughs> and he's got two of them there at Butler Aviation in Charlotte. Who aren't? They're not always flying around, and they're flying into Vegas trying to do this national expansion. And 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 TBS had not penetrated the West Coast market as well as USA had. And like I just mentioned, Vince's stars were probably more apt to be to be over just on looks and personality alone to what Crockett's were. And they're living in Vegas, and then they would fly down the private jet to Los Angeles and do a show. And everybody told, okay, cool show. But he's also booking the biggest building in the territory with very little TV overlay. And, yeah, the Forum, essentially the West Coast version of Madison Square Garden, right? I don't care if it's the Forum or not. You only got 2,000 people in there. It looks like a really empty building, doesn't it? 
Right. And then they fly back to Vegas, and the boys are going to be the boys. So what do you think they're doing all night long in Vegas? Drinking Party. and yep. gambling and partying. And except for Ric Flair, name anybody on that t- on on that on that roster that's going to be able to go and have a fu- have a great match the next night when they fly to San Francisco. Nobody. So now you're in San Francisco and it's the same crew and you're also not drawing. And now the matches suck too because everybody's hungover and tired, except for Ric Flair. Well, he's Ric Flair, right? Mm. <laughs> and this is going on in every major city on the coast, flying back to Vegas. And, you know, that's like I said, Monday's L.A., Tuesday's San Francisco, Wednesday's Portland, Thursday's Seattle. And each progressive show is declining results in ring because they're doing more and more partying back in Vegas. And all the time, this is Austin Crockett, God knows how much money. Right. And eventually it's just too much. It's just too much. And, and that leads to the UWF. The UWF, Bill Watts is a little different. Once again, he's trying to expand nationally, too, at the same time. But he's a little more cautious. He's just trying to buy syndicated slots in, in markets wisely on his point, in my opinion, that are going to accept his stars and his style of booking. Like here in Greenville, South Carolina, where we had his show syndicated. A Crockett fan is going to be pretty receptive to the UWF style of booking and style of wrestling. And we were. It did pretty good ratings here in this, in this market. What he didn't do that, that Crockett did was he didn't go, I'm, I'm going to go try to run New York. Bill Watts was not that stupid. Right. <laughs> I think Bill Watts was a much better businessman than Crockett, Crockett Jr. was. And so he, he's, he, I think he has a much slower burn idea on expanding he's kind of testing the waters more before he is going to send out and and mass his live shows but what kills him eventually is still what's keeping him financially soluble is his is his core audience in that core territory you know tulsa oklahoma city he's expanded into houston now because he's you know he's got the deal with paul bosch louisiana arkansas those towns those live shows and those tv markets are still where he's making they're the they're the they're the revenue that are keeping him in the black, and he's and he's he's teetering on going into the red by expanding television into markets where he's not running live shows. Like I said, like here in the Carolinas, because he's taking a little bit more of a slow burn approach than Jim than Jim Crockett is. Unfortunately, the whole region that was the core of his of his territory is predicated upon oil money. Think about the areas we're talking about: Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana. These are oil states. Mm-hmm. Well, if you, you can go back and look at history in 1988. The, the oil the oil market in that territory tanked, just went under. And lots of people were out of work. Lots of people took pay cuts. And when you don't have enough money to put food on the table or pay your mortgage, do you have enough money to go to live shows? Nope. And that's eventually what kills Bill Watts. So both are losing money, but for very different reasons. And of course, the, the, the going into the red is what precipitates Jim Ross getting marching orders from Bill Watts to proffer a deal to Jim Crockett Jr., by the territory, which is actually, once again, proving that I think Bill Watts is a better businessman than Jim Crockett Jr. He realizes this guy's just gobbling up territories trying to get syndicated syndicated television slots. I got a whole bunch. I'm He was burned out, too, at that point, Bill Watts, by his own admission. He was burned out. He'd been in the business, what, 30 years at that point, probably? Something you know? like, yeah. Time to step away, enjoy my wife and my kids. At this point, his kids were entering college. You know, Eric was playing at Louisville. I'm sure he probably want to take some time off and go Go watch his kids play college ball, enjoy some time with his wife. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not making money now. I'm losing it. Here's this guy who's just throwing money around. Why not offer him a deal? And he did. <laughs> and, and, and because Crockett was, like I've just stated, not the greatest businessman. And by the way, Jim Crockett has openly said publicly years later he was to blame. You can throw the blame all you want on Dusty's booking or, or, or whatever. Ultimately, he was the guy behind the wheel, so it's his fault. 
I said, I believe you said you even heard that interview before, correct? Yeah. He says that in the rise and fall of WCW documentary right. that, that WWE did. Right. So, so, so he buys Bill Watts. So now it's really only a two, a two man race, Vince and Crockett. He's bought, but that last buyout, buying out Bill, and it, it's a famous story in the wrestling business. I think it's Jim Dillon who told the story I've heard before where his office there in the look. This is, this is the difference between Vince and the Crockett's. Let me use this as an example. Vince did not have the Titan Towers that he has now, but he did have a smaller business complex he owned that he called Titan Towers in Stanford, right, mm-hmm. by this point. Crockett's were, were no longer running out, out, of, out of literally this booth in a diner. He's bought in an old convenience store off the main drag. In, in Charlotte, and it's converted into an office space. And that's what he's running it out of. And it, Dusty has an office there because he's the booker. And JJ has an office there because, he, you know, he's Dusty's assistant. The two secretaries I've talked about earlier, the accountant. And I, no, I tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't JJ Dillon. It was, it was Sandy Scott. Sandy Scott was George Scott's kid brother who was a local promoter for the Crockett's. He, he, he ran the, Carolina, the South Carolina. He, he had all the he was the he was the middleman between the, the office in Charlotte and all the the towns here in South Carolina, Columbia, Greenville. And Sandy's told the story of he went into his office one day and it was caddy corner to the Crockett's office. And it was either David or Jim Jr. walks into the, like a Monday morning and walks into the to the to the the accountant's office space there, walks out 10 minutes later and is literally by by Sandy Scott's question, white as a ghost. And he's like, what's wrong? We're two million dollars in debt. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and literally, I think I, I, I think I could be wrong. I think that accountant had a heart attack. That's how serious it was. I know he quit pretty soon after this. It was just like Jim. Jim was just spending money left and right. The last of the last straw was buying the UWF from Bill Watts, and now he's too, somehow he went from making all this money in, in like '86, and by end of '87 or mid '88, a year and a half later, he's two million dollars in the hole and trying to expand nationally. And like you, like I'm talking about, trying to run this business out of this little old former convenience store with a hand, a, literally a handful, five or less people off the staff. And Vince has got this business complex with 30, 40 people working for him. You can see what's what's going on here. This is not hard to. This is not. You don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to figure this out, do you? <laughs> right. It kind of makes you wonder how so few people can spend so much money. Right. And so then, it, then, then, it, then it precipitates the 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 sale of of Crockett to Turner. And then it morphs into WCW, and that's that's also legendary. Now you've got you do have a two man race, but it's a different two man race now because because by this point, for right or wrong, Crockett has somewhat expanded nationally through TBS's overlay, but it's it it, it pales in comparison to the popularity of what Vince's product is. Partly because he beat him to it, partly because of bad business decisions. But it wouldn't be until what seven years later with the NWO that he finally was a WCW was actually able to go head to head with 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 Vince finally. Mm-hmm. And here's and here's the thing on that: it wasn't just Ted Turner's money. There you cannot you cannot underscore whether you like it or not the changes Bischoff made that made WCW feel like a national promotion instead of a regional promotion based out of Atlanta, an old territory. Uh, am I wrong in, in having that opinion, or do you have a thought on that? No, no, not at all. I know that the reputation that Crockett had, and it's evident even on the stuff you find on the WWE Network, it was essentially studio wrestling. You had, right. what, how many people were there for a lot of those weekend tapings? 50, 100? Not even that. If you're, if you're talking the old TBS 605 stuff, mm-hmm. 30, 40 people. Right. The old Turner Studios. 
I think they were off of Techwood, which is like right in downtown Atlanta. And then you compare that to WWE or WWF at the time, which was Vince's marketing ability. You, you see mm-hmm. them in all these arenas and such mm-hmm. that the average person will look at that and go, well, geez, these guys are the, are the bigger deal. What, what are these people mm-hmm. wasting their time in front of half a dozen? And that's another example of, of, of Junior's attempts to compete with him in like look and style. And it winds up costing him money that, that makes that winds up putting him in the red. He sees he's pronouns, pal, since we are talking about Vince, right? <laughs> Jim Crockett Jr. sees the excitement generated by having a live house show crowd on the television. So he starts doing that. Problem is they don't change what they're doing with the TBS stuff, which is the national overlay stuff. Every once in a while, instead of having the studio show, maybe once or twice a year, they would they would they would record matches at like the Omni in Atlanta and, and put those on the 605. But the live stuff was only the, only, only the syndicated regional stuff, the Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling that I grew up with. And so it's like if you're trying to show a national audience how, how cool it is to be at one of your shows, it's not doing any good if you're not, you're not putting it on the product that's getting out to those people. And mm-hmm. on top of that, once again, more money being spent, Jim Crockett Jr. has to have facilities, you know, a truck, a production truck, and more camera people. To do the live recording. So for, oh, I think for almost a year, he's hiring out a company called Nemo, which is out of Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is like essentially a suburb of Charlotte. It's on the South Carolina side of, 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 of the line. For those who don't know, Charlotte almost sits right on the, the North Carolina, South Carolina border. Nemo! Oh, oh, wait, wrong Nemo. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it actually, it's an acronym. It stands for National Electronic Mobile Operations. I think they probably got the idea more from Captain Nemo of the Nautilus because that Nemo hadn't <laughs> existed yet. <laughs> that was the next but, Nemo I was going to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next million but show. anyway, the, he eventually realized, well, this is stupid having to pay them every time I want to record a television. So he wound up buying the company. Granted, that's probably a smart move in the long run because unlike everything I've said before, at least Crockett's now doing the same thing Vince is doing, is, is hiring people and putting them on the payroll that know what they're doing. But – my understanding was Nemo was was yes they were owned by Crockett by that point I think it was like late eighty six early eighty seven he finally wound up buying them they were still they were he still gave them a lot of autonomy and let them make their own deals doing other stuff around the area for local newscasts and things like that so they're not completely beholden to him and I'm, I don't know the particulars of the money but I get you I bet you overpaid for what market value was and you can see well I lay it out Bill Watts and Jim Crockett. Both had the same idea around the same time Vince did. Yes, part of it was an attempt to compete with him. They just weren't – one failed because of bad luck and the other failed because of bad business decisions. But both of them ultimately failed. And so to say Vince killed the territories is ridiculous. It was going to happen anyways. It was, and, and, and might I add, even before Vince – because you brought up the whole studio wrestling thing. Even before Vince – I think wrestling changed and it started with cable and satellite with world class. They were doing their production values and the multi-camera shoot and doing a live crowd there in the sportatorium. That was, they were doing that in 81, 82 before Vince was doing it. Vince hadn't even bought the company from his dad yet. So if you really want to go back, world class was ahead of the curve as far as understanding the slicker production style of a television product was important to, to, to wrestling. Remember world class because of their, deal with a big Christian broadcasting station there in Fort Worth were satellite feeding out their their syndicated show to Israel and they were doing tours of Israel 
So they were truly global and wow. breaking the gentleman's agreement. And I think the only reason that, that Fritz didn't get the heat that Vince got was twofold. One, Fritz was more respected than Vince was. Not Vince Sr., Vince Jr., by the NWA guys. But because nobody was running Israel. So nobody nobody felt like, oh, you're trying to run in my territory. Ah, if he wants to spend the money to fly to Israel and take a show there, that's his business, right? Right. But let's let's go back to 82 and say that, that the overlay that, that, that he has with his Christian broadcasting, Fritz has, isn't Israel. And instead, it's Denver, Colorado, which, yes, Vern was running, but not that often. If he decided to take world class and run a show in Denver, don't you think Vern would have been pissed? Probably, yeah. And so here's the thing. So that's what I'm saying. It's like even before Crockett and Watts, even even I think Fritz had a little bit of this idea, at least on the, the TV production side end. And understanding that, that satellites and cable television was changing the way people were getting television. And that so you can even go before Vince even bought the company. This idea of going national and or globally was thought of by other quote unquote regional NWA territorial promoters because Fritz did it in 82. So it's it's and that leads me to the second half of this. And it, it, to answer the question that my friend asked me at the beginning was, so would territories survive today if Vince didn't kill them? Vince may have not killed them, but he made he Vince has made sure they stay buried and dead. I think you under I think you can agree with that. Right. The, the analogy I was going to give is maybe he didn't kill them, but there's certainly a few that he shot in the knees. Sure. And, and, and my point to that is, and this is why I say territories would not work in 2019, the year of our Lord, is we do have three examples after the territories had essentially died and all that was left was two national promotions, WCW and WWF, Turner and Vince. There were three, and in my opinion, were legitimate regional territories. And what I by that is, it's like we've discussed about before. They ran certain towns in a small geographical area that that had syndicated television mostly in those markets and didn't really try to expand beyond that. And when they did, it didn't work out well. And I think those three territories to me are Smoky Mountain Wrestling, USWA, and ECW. And based on what we always say as a territory, what are your opinion on those three territories essentially being what was an old school territory? Right, because when you think about it, ECW started out as Eastern Championship Wrestling. It was Philly-based. I know you you were you kind of just went over, but it's places that were definitely based out of a certain area, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a certain city. Uh, ECW is based out of Philly. Smoky Mountain was based out of, I believe it was Tennessee, right? Uh, or Knoxville, Kentucky. Knoxville, yeah. Tennessee. Uh, no, okay. Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. And then USWA, which... Jerry Jarrett ran that kind of merged with world class and then world class split. And then it was USWA and mm-hmm. it, it was Memphis wrestling basically. And that one right. ran all the way up until the Monday night war happened. It was like 95, 96 or so that I, that I think it ended Smoky mountain right. ended in 95 and mm-hmm. ECW. If anything, the Monday night wars helped ECW because it was sure. generating interest in wrestling as a whole. So Right. But it doesn't change the fact that they were effectively a regional territory that had national syndication, but they were still based out of one city, one state. Right. And, and there's one other one we can throw in there, and I think it's it's different than, than the other three we've mentioned. That would be PNW, Pacific Northwest Wrestling, which was Don Owen. You've mm-hmm. already mentioned that they were they were still drawing because they did still have Roddy Piper coming in and helping them out. 
But it, it, unlike the other three, and we'll discuss why those other three went under briefly, Pacific Northwest Wrestling went under simply because the longtime promoter and former wrestler Don Owen just showed up at their TV tapings one day and said, I'm done. This is our last taping. I'm retiring. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think Vince forced them out. And, and my personal opinion, and this is a pretty deep dive, and, and it probably is going to be even more controversial than some of the other things I've said on this podcast and will say. Have you ever noticed that WCW and, and WWF, in the height of what we could call the steroid era of, of wrestling from the mid-80s to maybe the early 2000s, they very rarely, if ever, ran Portland and Seattle in those areas. Did you, did you, have you ever noticed that? Not really. I know they've done a couple shows in the Seattle area recently because I remember Brian Alvarez talking about them on, on his shows. But he right. also but I'm mentions, talking about in that era. Right, right. They, and if, part of it may have been that I don't know if they figured they'd had an arena big enough, but the point still stands. They, they were not running there, oh, so they, it makes sense that – They had big enough arenas. You Think about it. You had the, the Rose Garden in Portland where the Trailblazers play. That's big enough, right? Okay. Yeah. Seattle, you had – they had a vet of WrestleMania in Seattle since that time. Uh, but but they had – I can't remember the name of the building, but where the Supersonics play. They had two NBA arenas in that territory. Do you think they weren't running that territory out of fear of Don Owens coming in and shutting them down? Probably no. not, yeah. Washington State and Oregon State have two of the most prolific and active regulated wrestling athletic commissions in the state who test heavily for steroids. That, I think, is why you didn't see WCW and <laughs> WWF run in that era. That's just my opinion. And I remember, my opinion, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm a guy who was in the business at that time. Okay, (laughs) I'm just I'm just saying it's just food for thought. Just think about it. I think there might have been like one nitro, if I remember right, from maybe Portland or somewhere in that area or maybe Tacoma in that era. But that's essentially what a a fifth of one corner of our nation, a fifth of our nation that the two biggest national promotions aren't running in. And I don't think it was out of fear of the local regional territory still being so strong. Because when did, when did when did Pacific North – when was that famous day where Don Owens said, I'm done? Was it 93, 94? Yeah, yeah it was early 90s. And I think yeah. it, it got restarted a little bit later, but not under Don Owens, of course. So Right, right. But back to the original three we mentioned. Why I think they won't work, and it also lends to what I'm, t- I'm talking about. That, yeah, Vince didn't kill the territories, but he might make sure they never rise again. It's not a matter of Vince wanting to kill the territory. As much as Vince is a businessman, and you can also throw Ted Turner and WCW into this discussion because this affects these three promotions because it was during WCW's run as well. Anytime you run a regional territory and you find a hot star handful of of guys who get over and can work and are charismatic, you as a regional guy, no matter how much money you're making off your television deals and stuff like that, you're never going to have the resources to offer money to top guys like Ted Turner and Vince McMahon were. And if you look at all three of the territories we're talking about, that hap- that's, that's what happened. It's like the top guys, the guys that knew how to work and knew how to draw and were going to get over, they got over in Smoky Mountain, they got over in ECW, they got over in the USWA, and then Vince or Ted hired them. So let's look at Smoky Mountain. Top guys knew how to draw, knew how to make money that got gone because they got hired away to one of the big companies. Jim Cornette himself, the guy who owns the company and books it. Brian Lee, a young Kane, Glenn Jacobs, a young Al Snow, Tom Pritchard, Lance Storm, Chris Jericho, gone. All Smoky Mountain guys, right? Right, right. Another one that fits into that, he wasn't as big of a name, but he's still a Hall of Famer and such, and that's Charles White, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Godfather. Right, exactly. Let's go to, well, that's US, he was a USWA guy too, you know? Right. 
So oh. let's go. Let's go to USWA. Let's go to USWA. That's fine because mm-hmm. they were doing some talent exchanges because Jarrett gave Cornette his start, and that's why that was happening. And they were just on opposite ends of the same state, but they're both yeah. regionals. They're both territories. Yeah, I think one more to, about Smoky Mountain that that fits is Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch. I think they got their mm-hmm. start there as well. Yes, you're exactly right. I was going to mention them in ECW, but you're right. They got their start there too. And and, and eventually they wind up with Vince. They just don't leave Smoky Mountain and go straight to Vince. They leave. They leave. No, they did. They went. They left straight from Smoky Mountain to Vince, and it was after Vince let him go they went to ECW. So, yeah, you're yeah, right. I think that's right, yeah. But then you brought up Charles White, Godfather, comma, whatever you want to call him, Papa Shango, whatever. He'd already been to the dance as Papa Shango. But then he came back down and he was working USWA and, and Smoky Mountain. So you got him. You got Jeff Jarrett. You got Road Dog, And most importantly of all, they lose Jer- Jerry Lawler to Vince McMahon. Jerry Lawler's the biggest star in that territory in what, the last 30 years? Easily. Let's be honest. It was, it was Jackie Fargo. And then when Jackie finally kind of settled down, it became Lawler. And Lawler was, what, 74 when he first started getting his main event push in Memphis? So he's been the top star there for 20, 30 years. And now he's gone. And then let's look at ECW, which once again made the mistake I think that Crockett made in trying to overreach themselves and expand with trying to cut these deals, getting a cable overlay, starting to try to run shows in other areas, not thinking about how expensive it's going to be to try to put a whole show on the road. But they're losing their top guys to Vince and, and, and Ted too, the Dudleys, Sabu, Taz, Rob Van Dam. Even though he was an ECW guy, Shane Douglas, now he went back to ECW after Vince let him go, but Vince hired him away once. Mm-hmm. And so did WCW later in the run. And to me, that is why the territories will never work to this day. It's what people need to understand about NXT and these developmental deals and the performance center that Vince has now. I understand you love Ring of Honor and you love Impact and these smaller promotions, but if the guy's got talent, if he's got potential, he's got a look, he can talk, he can wrestle, you don't think Vince has the money to hire him away from them? Right. To give a modern day example, I think it's only a matter of time before somebody like Tamatanga g- sure. goes to Vince. He he fits that whole vibe that they go for. And just, yeah, some of these other names, anybody that's going to have real talent, if Vince doesn't notice himself, one of his scouts will. And you could say it would even be advantageous, even if you don't push them, that you sign them just to keep the other guys from having them. Look at the top guys in WWE right now. Okay, right now, the top guys in WWE, about half of them came from these from these smaller companies we're talking about. Where did Daniel where did where did Daniel Bryan come from? Where did Seth Rollins come from? Where did Samoa Joe come from? Where did AJ Styles Mm -hmm. come from? Aren't they all Ring of Honor guys? Yeah, they they, they were all there at at some point. Yeah. Yeah. AJ was an impact guy. You see my point? So it's like it's I think people need to understand. And 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 it it pains me to say this as an old school guy as I am. The territories ain't coming back. okay? and they may come back, but they're never going to come back like they were. You just you have to have been you have to understand what the territories were. You have to understand how television was at that time. And a guy like Ric Flair or a guy like. Let's go even go back to the seventies. A guy, a guy like let me say, who's a good regional star you can think of? Spun Nick Monroe. He's a great example, right? Mm-hmm. Huge star in Memphis. He was a huge star everywhere he went. But on a national standpoint, nobody knew who he was because wrestling wasn't national at the time. But he was a main event guy everywhere he went. A huge star in Memphis. Had a good run here in the Carolinas, in Florida. I think he worked some for for Fritz and and in, in Calgary. But 
days of those type guys are gone. And if a guy like Sputnik, who could wrestle and had a good look and had charisma, were performing today and competing today, Vince would hire him in a heartbeat. Am I wrong in feeling that way? No, totally agreed. It is what it is. So, no, Vince didn't kill the territories. He just was one of many people who saw the writing on the wall. Two, he just won. He just did. This is what it was. Another thing I want to add, and this is, could be a whole other topic, but I'm not knocking down Vince's abilities. I don't want people to interpret this. Vince is a brilliant marketer, and he knows how to put on a big show. But a lot of Vince's victory, and I say that in air quotes, is more of, and I think we explained it pretty well in this last half hour, was a lot of his competitors having bad luck or just not being as good businessmen as him. So it was more what they did more than what he did sometimes. Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. The last thing I really had to, to talk about the territories is there was one of those attempts made in the mid-'80s. They ran a major show at Comiskey right. Park, which is where the, the White Sox used to play. And mm-hmm. the, Pro Wrestling USA had, had several of these territories. It was AWA. It was Crockett, uh, Crockett and Memphis with, with Jerry Jarrett. Prince. So they had an NWA title match and an AWA title match on the same card. And I heard we mentioned this, in, the, in the Harley. We mentioned in the Harley episode that happened a lot back in those days. <laughs> right, right. But I've heard the stories. I think Greg Gagne has explained it in one of the kayfabe commentary shows that that he did. He said Jerry Jarrett by name, and I'm sure there's other people. There's heat. There's heat there. There's yeah. heat there. Because <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> because uh, what what Jerry was doing was while the show was going on, and everybody's goal is to team up and beat Vince. Allegedly, he's trying to sign away people from these other territories to work for him in Memphis, and that's not being a team player. And you know how big of a Jerry Jerry fan I am. Right. And Mike Graham, I've heard him talk about this before his passing, where I think he was a little more blunt than anybody else involved, because I've heard Crockett talk about this. I've heard Mike Graham, because I think Florida was involved in that, or at least Mike Graham at that time, I think maybe Crockett had bought Florida. And Mike was involved in the booking because he was one of Dusty's guys in Florida and all that, right? Yeah, and this would have been about the time I, Eddie Graham would have would have killed himself. This is like 85, 86, yeah. Yeah, passed away. But you've got – one hand doesn't know what the other one's doing is basically what Mike Graham said. It, it, it's, it's the old joke. How are these guys supposed to book this show and have some kind of unification when they can't even agree on whether they should have tuna salad or ham sandwiches for lunch. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's right. what you've got going on. And you understand it. Once again, to go back to the alpha male thing I was talking about. Vern wants his guys to look like the best. Jerry wants his guys to look like the best. Crockett Jr. wants his guys to look like the best. That can't happen. Somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to lose. All the fans today talk about how they hate 50-50 booking, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't have a card. Where everything, every match is a screw finish and there, or, or a draw and there's no clear winners. That just is not going to get over. And that's what you're setting yourself up for. And I think that is where Vince did have an advantage. And to a certain extent, probably Bill Watts. Besides Bill Watts being in a, a, I like a better businessman than Jim Crockett Jr., he was in charge. It, he was the alpha male of the UWF and his word was law. And it was only his word that mattered. Same thing with Vince McMahon. Whereas Crockett is a little different personality than those guys. And he's trying to appease everybody. And he's still an active member of the NWA, even though the NWA is dying and he has all the power at that point. I, I think you see what, see what I'm saying though. It's right. just, you talk to anybody who's worked for Vincent man, whether they liked working for him or not. I'll, you see him punk get another one of those guys are talking about who's talented, who was an ROH guy who got hired away. 
So, <laughs> it, but even he's admitted that whether you like Vince or not, you knew you knew that he was in charge. It was his call. It was his company. That the the, the old buck stops here to quote Harry Truman. So, you're right. It, it, it was it was attempted. It didn't work. We talked at length about other ones that tried and it didn't work. So I think. This may be one I kind of got you on board with, maybe more so than the Steamboat Savage. This is, yeah, Vince yeah. didn't kill the territories. It was, right. it was, it was bound to happen. He just might have have exacerbated an already bad situation. It was a dumpster fire, ladies and gentlemen. The territories were by by eighty three, eighty four. It just was what it was, and Vince just happened to be. I don't want to say the smartest or the best, but definitely probably the most patient with the best business acumen. And, and and one more thing I do want to add. You cannot underscore, and I think you'll agree with this as well, Seth, one cannot underscore part of Vince's advantage he had over Bill Watts and Fritz von Erich and Crockett and anybody else we want to mention. He had New York, which is a major media center in the mainstream media's eyes in his territory, and nobody else had that. And that helped. Do you agree? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Atlanta's cool. Dallas is a nice big city. They're not L.A. and They're not L.A. and they're not New York. And nobody had L.A., and he had New York, and that helped a lot, too. We're going to talk Ronnie Garvin and his brief run with the NWA title in the end of 1987. And there are a lot of people that believe putting the belt on him was silly. I've seen stuff in, like, I think it was the WrestleCrap book where the author, R.D. Reynolds, like compared it to something like something really crazy or insane people would do, something like that. I, I, I'd have to look, look the book up exact, again. Exact and, quote. <laughs> right, to get the exact quote. But that's basically what it was saying, was that making a joke about putting the, the title on Ronnie Garvin. And I obviously was not around for the majority of Ronnie Garvin's career. I saw a lot of his run in WWE, and I don't think I quite understood him at the time, which kind of makes sense if you're seeing him for the first time in WWE, but he had that feud with Ric Flair for the better part of a year that was on again, off again, but the climax was Ronnie beating Flair, and I think it was a steel cage match, and yep. that's what led to Starcade 87. Now, what I think, why people look down on the idea of Ronnie Garvin as a world champion, just in my view, is he never defended the title. I don't think he had a single title defense in the time between winning the title and losing it to Flair at, at Starcade. That's really where I think a lot of that criticism might might come from. And I know you're going to have a different take on it than I do, because I was watching from a Chicago mindset as far as location, and I wasn't really watching WCW at the time or anything like that. So right. I, I I think there's a lot of people like me who came along, along later. And yeah, Ronnie Garvin looks like he could win a fight, but he doesn't seem to have that superstar it factor that a lot of people in WWE have, at least when they're put at the top. So I always figured that's, that's one of the reasons. It's just he just didn't seem like he was a big enough or popular enough guy to be to be a world champion, especially when you consider the main guys that held the NWA title through that decade of the 80s were Flair, Harley, and Dusty. And Dusty really didn't have a, any long reigns in there. And then Tommy Rich had a Bonks. cup of coffee with it. Yeah. And uh, so for the most part, 
you had to be on the level of Flair and Dusty to be considered world champion material. And I just don't right. think Ronnie made the cut when it comes to that. So that that's my end of it. Well, I, I can't say I disagree with you on the the idea that he didn't have uh, a whole lot of title defenses. Uh, I'm not sure that he didn't have any. I think he might have had one uh, between the time he won the belt and the time he dropped it back to Flair at Starcade 87. But I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but it seems to me that most of the people that have this opinion that it was such a it was terrible is more the latter things that you talked about. That he wasn't a main event guy. That he was he was a mid card guy and he was boring. And that's where I have issues with people. And I'll, I'll be honest here, and I'm not throwing him under the bus because I enjoy his podcast. But Conrad Thompson who obviously is doing way better than we are as far as, as, as downloads and, and, and subscribers. <laughs> it helps when you have people like Ric Flair and Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff and JR as your, your sounding boards and Bruce Pritchard. I get that. But he seems to be one of the most vocal I've heard online of, of known people of, of how terrible it was. And this is even in light of the fact that he is Ric Flair's son-in-law and has, has, has openly admitted that, that his father-in-law has told him on multiple occasions he loved working Ronnie Garvin and they had great matches. And I, I, I don't think that that was ever – I've never heard that argument, by the way. I've never heard an argument from even the, even the most ardent people who would say Ronnie Garvin was a stupid world champion choice. They've never argued that the, that the match that they had at Starcade was bad. They've all said it was a good match. And I think even you have agreed on that, haven't you? Yeah. I, I, it's definitely one of those that had the classic good guy, bad guy right. feel for it. It just makes sense. Right. Right. So, but I would say on 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 the former, on the not that that's that's a valid argument and that's a valid critique. But I would also counter that with: is that Ronnie Garvin's fault, or is that is that Dusty in the booking's fault for not having him lined up for more house show rematches with Flair? That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. and, and developing more of the story on the television, and, and by the same token, I would say the same thing. And I, you're not going to find me defending Ultimate Warrior that often. But I think Ultimate Warrior's title run after WrestleMania six was much the same. It wasn't Ultimate Warrior's fault as much. Now, obviously, Ultimate, in my opinion at least, Ultimate Warrior was much more limited in what he could do, even though he had a better look, was much more limited in what he could do in every other aspect of what we do in pro wrestling to what Ronnie Garvin could do. But he also, like Ronnie Garvin, had really no legitimate rematches with Hogan or anybody really set up to be a to be somebody for him to fight with after he got the belt. And so many people will talk about how he had a failed title run and I always say the same thing I say about Ronnie. Is that is that Warrior's fault or is that the booking of WWS fault? Right. But on the latter, that's where I have a problem because it does seem that most people I talk to who disagree with this is like I said they're like Conrad Thompson. No, he just wasn't a star. So I'm going to quote Dave Meltzer here, a paraphrase, I should say. You cannot fully understand a territory unless you were alive at that time in that territory. Eric Bischoff says all the time, context is king. And I think when you speak historically about things, you do have to take context. We can agree, yes, this is all the United States. It's all America or North America if you include the promotions in Canada. But all those regions are a little bit different than the others, and that's why the territory system kind of worked the way it did. Are, are we in agreement on that? Right, yeah, because you watch a, ma a main event match for WWE, and then you watch a main event match for Crockett or AWA. They're all going to be different matches. Right. To be completely outside of wrestling, great, great, great example of this. I am a Southerner. To me, biscuits and gravy are a breakfast. It's something you eat for breakfast. It's an actual meal. 
If you were to ask Seth, it's more of a side dish. Right. That's the difference between a Southerner and a Midwesterner. And neither one of them are wrong and neither one of them are right. It's just different take based on regional things. And so as a fan in the territory that we're talking about, which was Crockett, in that time, in 1987, I can tell you, you can go all the way back to when Ronnie Garvin came into the territory in 1984, 85. He was always presented as a, not, maybe not a main event guy, but that, that, that area right below it. So a guy who you could believe could have a short title run. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of a modern day comparison. Samoa Joe's not quite right, but he's kind of right. Right, right. He may not be the type of person you'd expect to have a long title title reign, but he is certainly a credible challenger for the guy who is. And this is going to sound crazy me saying this now in light of how successful his title run is is right now, but Kofi Kingston's a good example. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. everybody is happy with Kofi being a world champion right now, but no one really saw him or presented him saw him as a main eventer uh, before he beat Daniel Bryan. Am I wrong in feeling that way? No, I don't. I don't think you're wrong at all. But and to, and to Kofi's credit, I think he stepped up to the plate and lived up to being a main event guy worthy of holding that title. And that's where I tell you, Ronnie Garvin here in this territory was completely different. Okay, he was presented from the day he entered the territory years before this title run in 87 as a upper main mid upper middle mid card to lower main event guy and this is not hard to research ladies and gentlemen you can go on the wwe network right now and watch older and i wish i had an exact date for you and if i look it up i'll, I'll give it to, to seth so he can put it in the group he can put it in the show notes there are times on the old 605 wtbs show from like 85 84 ronnie garvin is having main events at like the omni in atlanta against rick flair for the world title they're 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 going back that far and presenting ronnie garvin as a threat to rick flair's title so i can tell you as a fan in this territory at that time we had no problem seeing ronnie garvin as a world champion we did not at all and it, 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 that's what i'm saying it plays into what dave Meltzer said you cannot fully understand something uh unless let's be honest Jerry Lawler, he's not he's not in bad shape, but he he's not he does Jerry Lawler look like you even like Ric Flair when it comes to like body types and physique types for an athlete? Not not in the least. No. Now, we all know Lawler was great in the ring. He took the big bumps. He was a great promo. But does Lawler really work as a main event guy anywhere other than Memphis? Probably not. But does that change the fact that Jerry Lawler probably drew more money in that town than most other guys drew anywhere else in the world for a long time? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I, my opinion of Jerry Lawler, I think Carl Stern said it the best on one of his podcasts, which is, if you were to make a list of the 50 most technical wrestlers of all time, Jerry the King Lawler is not going to be on that list. And no. <laughs> if you do a list of the 50 most influential wrestlers of all time, King might not make that list either, but you cannot tell the story of professional wrestling, especially if... Uh, the Memphis territory without mentioning Jerry, the King Lawler. I think that's the perfect summary. Yeah. And let's go even farther. Who was his main rival in that, in that whole time period he was on top, Bill Dundee, even less of a, of a chance of probably being a main event guy anywhere, but Memphis, right? Right. He's short. He's stocky. He's a hell of an athlete. The guy was a trapeze artist in the circus before he got into wrestling. So from an athletic standpoint, Bill Dundee might be one of the most athletic guys ever in wrestling. As far as just like being limber and, and move and, and, 
That's why he did so many doggone scaffold matches back in the day, because Dundee's not afraid of heights. Former trapeze guy. PN News, he's not, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. There, hug, that was so funny, hugging that. Anyways, we digress. <laughs> but, but my point is, both these guys were huge stars, main event guys, to those fans in Memphis for, what, 15, 20 years? But they aren't going to be anywhere else. And that's what I say about Ron Garvin. He was perceived as a main event guy, or at least a threat to a main event guy in this territory. He was over. He had a Dusty Rhodes vibe to him without the flamboyance of Dusty Rhodes. Right. I, I like to call it the uh, everyman appeal. I, that's that's that the way I look exactly at it. exactly what I was getting ready to say. Okay. Very blue collar. Very blue collar. I mean, remember, he wore trucker hats when he did his promos. And, and he was – I often hear, well, he wasn't charismatic enough and he didn't cut a good enough promo. Well, everybody who loves Ricky Steamboat and thought Ricky Steamboat was fine as a world champion, but how are his promos any better or worse than Ricky Steamboat's promos? Right. They're not. They're they're very calm. They're very believable. And people have to remember, Ronnie Garvin is a French-Canadian. English is a second language to him. And he's cutting pretty convincing promos in a language that didn't even, even his native language. So that, that even, to me, makes it more impressive, quite frankly. You know? And, and then the other thing we need to discuss, you need to understand what went into why he got the title and all that. And a lot of that actually ties back to the discussion we had in the previous segment where we talked about Crockett's attempts to go national. Crockett decided in this idea to compete against Vince, he had to look, quote unquote, more national than regional, not a southern wrestling territory. So he decides to move Starcade out of Greensboro and move it to Chicago. Because it was started in Greensboro in 83. By 85, it was it was split. It was a double show. Half of it was in Atlanta. Half of it was in Greensboro. But he was still drawing in both those cities. And we've discussed on previous podcasts, especially our, our, our first episode about Stark 83, there was a long-running tradition of big shows on Thanksgiving night in Greensboro, going back to the 60s. So he decides, well, Chicago is, is more impressive than Greensboro, North Carolina. Not that dissimilar to what, how we ended the last segment talking about how just having New York in a mainstream eyes is more impressive than Atlanta or Dallas, right? Right. So they move it there, and you know because you're from Chicago, Vince by this point has a lockdown on, on that town. Do you think Vince is going to let them run, run their, their, their biggest show of the year in the buildings he runs in Chicago? Not a no. chance, right. And he, and he doesn't. So they have to get – was it UIC Pavilion I think is what they wound up getting, wasn't it? I think you're right, yeah. And it's you tell me you're a Chicago guy. Uh, at that time, Vince would have been running Rosemont Horizon. What's the size difference between the two buildings? Uh, quite a bit. The Rosemont Horizon or Allstate Arena, as it's called now, I want to say it's under twenty, 10. but it's yeah, but yeah, it's like fifteen, maybe eighteen. That's off the top of and my head. UIC Pavilion is probably what seven, ten thousand tops. Right. Yeah. So about half the size, almost. Approximately, yeah. And even even from a namesake value, if even you don't live in Chicago. You'd have heard of the Rosemont Horizon. UFC Pavilion sounds like what it is, a small college basketball arena, because that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, a reason why it's got the University of UIC, Illinois, Central Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's why that's what UIC means. So right. it, you know, literally, so that, it's a school place. That hurts Crockett. It does. But that, that has nothing to do with why Ronnie becomes a champion. It was – at that point, Crockett understood because the writing was on the wall. I'm not sure if he had gotten the news from the accountant yet that they were $2 million in debt. I think that came a few months later. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think the writing was on the wall. 
and this attempt to go national. They wanted to make this move to make it look big. They understood, and you can definitely speak to this as a native Chicagoan, it's a heel town. Yep. Ric Flair was the biggest star that he had. As big a star as Dusty was, and Dusty didn't want to admit it, Ric Flair was the biggest star that Crockett had. And Ric Flair was the guy who could be put on Vince's television as is, and people would buy, even Vince's fans would buy him as a threat to Hulk Hogan. And I speak to that only because it's just a fact, and it was the, they knew that to have that big, quote-unquote, WrestleMania moment, even though this was Starcade, a Starcade moment, I guess, was to have Ric Flair go over for the title because they were moving it to Chicago, and they knew it was going to go over the live crowd there in Chicago. If you think I'm being a bit dubious when I say about this about Ric Flair, how much did he change? Did Vince McMahon change his gimmick when he got when he actually got up there a few years later? Like none, none. at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one guy that the Crockett knew he had on his roster that was going to be over with the live crowd there in Chicago. That was going to be perceived by those watching the pay per view on a national level who were being exposed for maybe the first time to his product. They could buy this guy as a legit world champion. So the whole idea is, and we talked about this in the Booking 101 episode, the way that Dusty books, the way I book, it's the Eddie Graham school of booking. You know the destination and you book backwards from it, right? Right. So the destination is, and I'm just giving you the reasons why they wanted it, the destination is Ric Flair goes over for the world title of the main event of Starcade 87. That's the destination. Now we have to book backwards, okay? We got to figure out who we can put the belt on. And I'm, so when I say we, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is what Dusty and the, and the creative team at Crockett at the time are thinking. Who can we put the belt on that it is a babyface, that the fans will buy as a world champion, that is not going to hurt them at all and their placement on the card by having to do a clean job to Rick at Starcade 87? That's what they're thinking. And so many names are actually thrown about at this point. I know Br Barry Windham was one of them, but I think they felt that Barry was going to be one of the guys to topple Flair down. Because remember, this is before Sting has come into the fold. And they didn't know who Sting was or what he was going to become. So I think the mindset was, well, Barry's the guy who's going to eventually get the torch passed to him by Flair. So it makes no sense to, to have him do a clean job to Flair at this point. Are you understanding this so far? Yes. Yes, definitely. Okay. So Barry's out of the question. But he was bandied about. Another one was Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton would have definitely gotten booed over Ric Flair in Chicago. Am I wrong in saying that in 1987? Absolutely not. I'd be, I can't prove it, but <laughs> with as heel friendly as the city is, people like Ricky and Robert who have that teeny bopper vibe to them, so to speak, as far as their <laughs> appeal. They're there for the kids and the girls, basically. Once again, Ricky Punky has intimated to me personally that he feels that some of this suggestion that did get, get to him, by the way, was because he, he claims he turned it down. I have no proof of this. I'm only going off what Punky's told me, and I don't have a reason not to believe Punky. You follow what I'm saying? Man's never lied to me before. But he is a pro wrestler, and we're all dubious. Remember, we're all workers. I say that all the time, you know, and myself <laughs> included. But he, he felt that Dusty was trying to split him and Robert up, and he didn't want to do that. And I think, personally, Punky understood because of his size and his look, he was never going to be accepted as a, as a, as a, as a, as a singles guy. He was always going to be a tag team guy. That's just my opinion, and mm -hmm. I think he he understood that. And for God's sakes, look at all the money that he and Robert were making as the top babyface tag team in the territory. Why would you want to split up? It wasn't yes in '87. The Rock and Roll Express was not as over as they was in as they were in 1985 when he first came in the territory from the mid south. But they weren't they weren't 
they weren't far behind that. They still had – it was – they were never going to get the response that the other top babyface tag team, which was the Road Warriors, were going to get. But you were never going to see them and the Road Warriors in a match together because it didn't make sense. The clash of styles, both babyfaces. But they had a lot to bring to the table, still feuding with the Russians, still feuding with, with, with the Horsemen, still feuding with the Midnight Express. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why, why Punky turned it down. And I think – I think of all the names I've heard bandied about for who they could put the title on with the idea of dropping it to Flair, Punky was probably the worst idea. Do you think it was a bad idea? That would have been a really bad idea, but even worse than Ronnie Garvin? I'd have to think about it, but I, your your argument is strong. Again, the the whole women and kids demographic, that also means that the the guys are going to be booing them. And right. I, I, I don't think Ronnie Garvin ever had that problem. No, no. And I, I, those are the two names I've heard other than Ronnie the most. But I've, I've and, and I know a lot about the, at least at least what Punky tells me on his side of the story. I'm sure there were other guys bandied about. And one once again, we have to go back in history and take things into context. Remember, Dusty brought in Magnum in 1985 to the territory with the sole idea of grooming him to become the world champion. And I think in Dusty's mind, if this took off like he thought it was going to, by this point, David Von Erich had died. So that program, which I think we both have agreed in, in past, would have happened had David survived. And that, that Kevin and Kerry just were not going to – they may have had better looks than their brother and more athletic. They were they couldn't have carried the world title like he could have. So David's out of the picture. Magnum's brought in. And I think Dusty had this idea of basically being – Barry and, and, and Magnum were going to be the guys that, 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 that Flair passed the torch to. And they were the young up-and-coming guys. And that was going to be the next generation, was going to be Barry and Magnum. And – you know, let's be honest. If Barry didn't have the health issues he had later on in life, and Magnum had to have the car wreck, those would have been phenomenal feud. I could see a heel Barry Windham and a babyface Magnum TA having great feuds over the world title, couldn't you? The poster sells itself. Yeah, it'll, both of them look like action figures, don't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, Magnum has the car wreck. Career's over. That changes everything. And this is happening two years before the Ronnie Garvin title run. And that's the, how different the booking was back then than it was now. Flair brings Dusty brings in Magnum in '85 with the thought of building him up for probably what three four years. My understanding was he was supposed to win the title at Starcade '86. Right, that's why he Flair. and Nikita had that seven match series that Magnum lost. Right, right. No, the Mag- but but that was what Dusty did. Dusty Dusty took lemons that were given to him and turned it into lemonade. When Magnum's now eliminated from this, from wrestling totally, he does the switch, turns Nikita babyface, and Nikita gets the title shot. So you can't put Nikita, and Nikita was, was, Nikita was just beginning to have the issues with his wife and not be as over as he used to be. So he was perceived, I think, and obviously by his look, even people outside of wrestling, he had a look Vince would have loved. I think we can agree on Nikita looked great in his oh, prime. Yeah. I think he looked like the monster that he was presented as. But he had just been the main event the year before with, with Rick. So he's eliminated now, too. So you've got Magnum's no longer in the picture. David Von Erich's no longer in the picture for obvious reasons. Nikita's not a viable option because he was the main event the year before. You need to cool him off a little bit. Punky doesn't work. Barry, you don't want to you don't want to kill Barry because he's the guy you plan for Rick to pass it to a couple years down the road. Who have you got left? Who have you got left? Yeah, nothing off you the can't top of my up, head. Right. Let's let's look at the babyface roster at the time. You can't split up the Road Warriors for the same reason you can't split up the Rock and Roll Express. They're too hot an act. Yeah. Who else have you got on the babyface side at that point in the Crockett's? Brad Armstrong, even less perceived as a as as a as, as a main event guy than Ronnie Garvin, right? No one will argue Brad Armstrong had a great look. 
and was a great. Believe me, him and Flair and and have had on television in Clash of Champions, great matches. But he's even less of a main event, I think, star in, in people's eyes than than Ronnie Garvin was. Tim Horner, give me a break. Yeah, I think right? Luger was still up and coming at the time. It would have been too early. Yeah, yeah, I think he might even have been in the Horseman at the time. So you're gonna have a Horseman fight a Horseman. Mm-hmm. And may, I can't remember if he had turned babyface at that point, but I don't think Luger was. Once again, Luger was another guy I think Dusty had in his mind in that mix with Magnum and Barry being the guy that he was going to pass the torch to. So there's just really nobody left on the babyface side. And Ronnie was, it was just, it, and look, Ron was like, I think, 40 or 41 at the time. He's told me himself when they came to him with this idea. He's like, how many other chances are, how many other chances am I going to have to work my way up the card and get a shot at the world title? Right. So why turn it down? He had no problems doing the honors for Ric Flair. And it's a great honor to be asked to carry that title. So I, I say that's why all the things I've just laid out is why I'm saying people are just off. He was over to the core audience in the territory here, Carolinas and Georgia, which was the core audience of the Crockett's, Ronnie Garvin was seen as a main event guy or just below it, had been presented that way both at live shows and on their television shows for three years prior to this, or two and a half years prior to this world title run. So for you to come in after the situation and not be alive in this territory, you don't understand. He was a, he was perceived by us fans, and he was over as a baby face with the fans here in the area. And especially when you look at the light, you put it in the light of what they were trying to do, with putting Flair over and the choices they had on the babyface side, I think it kind of makes sense now. And you're like, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad an idea as I thought. And of course, it puts closure on that feud, on that angle. Right, right. I said, this is a long. I'll, I said, I will look it up, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll, I'll get Seth to put it in the, in the notes. But there is a match that was the main event of the old 605 show that is on the WWE right now, where Ronnie Garvin is presented as a legitimate. And I think he even gets like. A, a, a visible three count on Flair, but I think the ref was was had been bumped or something. So, and this was like in 1984, 85. So, don't tell me he was he wasn't being presented or perceived by the fans as a threat to Ric Flair's title because he had been for years. And when you when you go back and watch that match, granted it's a small crowd because it's the old the old TBS studios. Listen to how they react. And you tell me if Ronnie Garvin wasn't over as a babyface and seen by the fans as a legitimate threat to Ric Flair's world title. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add on your thoughts on the, on that whole angle? Well, like you said, he had that everyman appeal, and that definitely worked. It's certainly not the norm, because people like Dusty come to mind and such, or, or modern example, like said, he, Daniel, he's Daniel he's Bryan. Dust, he's, he's, yeah. dusty without the, he's Dusty and Daniel Bryan without the same natural charisma and mic skills, in my opinion. Right. And no offense to Dusty or Daniel Bryan, they're both tough guys. I think Ronnie Arvin could kick their ass in a real fight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ronnie you know, Arvin was a legit bamf, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, Ronnie's, what, early to mid-70s now, and I wouldn't be surprised so, if he could take most guys uh, on WWE's active roster right now. Yeah, great, great, great little little Ronnie Garvin story for you. My trainer, Bubba Kirk, of course, was in the first group of male guys that Moolah trained. One of the guys that trained with him was a guy named Johnny Ziegler, Johnny Z, who still lives in the Columbia area near Moolah. And Johnny, like Bubba, did a lot of television matches for Vince in that era because Moolah arranged it for him. And Ronnie Garvin, this was after Ronnie Garvin's NWA title run. And he had that brief run that you mentioned earlier in in this segment uh, with Vince McMahon as rugged Ronnie Garvin. And Johnny went, found out he was going to be wrestling Ronnie that night for a television taping. 
And he he just started pestering Ronnie Garver from the get-go because he was green and he didn't understand locker room etiquette or politics yet. And Ronnie gave him that dreaded that dreaded phrase you never want to hear if you're a wrestler coming out of that you have to uh, out of a veteran's mouth that you know you've got to wrestle that night. Don't worry about it, kid. We'll see you in the ring. You never want to hear that come out of a veteran's mouth if you've got to wrestle with it. But that's what Johnny heard. I think you can imagine what happened during this TV taping. The figurative kiss of death is what he was giving him. And he beat the crap out of him. Johnny joking laughs about it now. But he came back with blood trickling out of his nose, bruises on his chest. His eye was swelling shut. His arm was lent, was numb from that sugar hold that, that Ronnie Garvin used to do, which is a legit shoot hold. And, and to the point where when he came back through the curtain, Jay Strongbow was one of the road agents at the time. Jay Strongbow jumped in Ronnie Garvin right away. And he was like, what the hell are you doing? And Ronnie's only response to, to Strongbow was the kid wouldn't shut up. <laughs> and Jay Strombo just let it drop. So, yeah, <laughs> Ronnie Ronnie was a tough dude, man. He can handle himself. But I, I think, well, like I said, now that I've laid that all out, I, I think I think you're right. It ended, the, it ended the, this year-long feud that wasn't a major feud. It only got elevated to that point when he won the title. But I think it all makes a little bit more sense. And, and I hope people will listen to what I've talked about and maybe reassess that now and go, oh, maybe Ronnie Garvin wasn't a bad choice. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. Now, I know one thing before we finish this off. This is just a little interesting. We always talk about another thing I've heard just briefly is part of what makes a baby face a baby face is the dynamic, exciting offense. And Ronnie Garvin was a brawler who did some really cool looking shoot moves, but he didn't have a great dynamic offense. But I add to that for trivia sakes. How did he win the title from Ric Flair? Do you know? I'm trying to think. Was it reversing something off the ropes or? Nope. A sunset flip off the top rope. For a guy who was known to not be very flashy in 1987, that was a pretty flashy move, wasn't it? Absolutely. That's <laughs> that's a diving flip off the top rope, dude. <laughs> right. It's a setup move by today's standards, but hardly anybody did it back then, I would imagine. Right. You saw Sunset Flip all the time, but it was coming off the ropes, not off the top rope. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. all right. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's going to wrap it up for this edition, this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. This has been Volume 30. The show is on the website, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. We're at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever great podcasts can be found. Train, if people want to talk to you, I know you mentioned it before, but uh, one more time, where can people find you if they want to talk favorite moments in wrestling or the greatest stuff of all time? <laughs> you can always reach me on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. Of course, uh, you can always check out geekvilleradio.com. That also has links to all our podcasts, not only Classic Wrestling Memories. That's also a good way to, to interact with us. And I figured in honor of Ronnie Garvin's title run in 1987, it would be appropriate to list, and I'll get this link to Seth to put in the show notes, my playlist from Spotify, which is 80s one-hit wonders, because Ronnie Garvin was kind of an 81 hit wonder, wasn't he? <laughs> Well, it wasn't, but a year later, they did sell out to, to Turner, so I guess that is fitting. <laughs> right. And here we are in the present day, folks. Hope you enjoyed this encore presentation of Unpopular Opinions. And there is an Unpopular Opinions Volume 2 out there. We'll be getting to that soon, also part of National Podcast Post Month. We hope you're enjoying these collections of episodes. This is Geekville Radio. You can find us at geekvilleradio.com. All of the social media is Geekville Radio, the Facebook, uh, the Twitter, and the 
Instagram can drop us a line there. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. Let us know if there's stuff we can improve upon. I always enjoy feedback, especially when it's genuine. So if you're genuinely negative, hey, I, I'll, I'll still hear it. I'd still like to hear it. So you can reply on the social media or on the board, on the sites themselves, geekradio.com and classicwrestlingmemories.com. Coming up on day four, we're going to do something original. I think some original content is due. It's about any time we do something like this. We can't spend everything just in review. So we're going to have a all-new show for you for day four. I'm uh, not going to let the cat out of the bag quite yet, but it will be a new episode. It won't be as long as these. It'll be a more short and sweet episode, but it's going to be all-new material. And I hope you folks enjoy that. We'll talk to you folks again tomorrow for day four. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeeklerRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. You know our own Norco Kipti, the host of the Wrestling Brethren podcast, I think he would be a good person to talk to about the Garvin stuff, but he actually has a, a funny term that I think is relevant. You were calling the territories dumpster fire. I think Norco Kipti coined a line, dumpster fire sale. <laughs> <laughs>